Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. As we all move forward in light of COVID-19, we want to encourage you to make a priority of joining us in person for worship. Because as you know, listening to a podcast can never replace the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we look forward to seeing you soon. In the meantime, here is this week's message. Yeah, please be seated. What an amazing song. I don't know if you guys know that song or if you've heard it before the past couple of weeks, but Spirit of Living God, what just an amazing song. And I hope that song is actually your prayer and your wish that God will come and just move in your life. Well, today, I'm glad you're here. We're continuing our series called I'll Do It Tomorrow, where we're talking about and learning about the biblical view of change. Remember, the first week we learned that change is natural, change is part of our life, and rather than resisting change that will come, we should allow the change to pull us closer to God. Last week, we talked about that theological word called sanctification, which is the process that we go through to become what God has already declared of us, meaning God has declared us holy, and because he's declared us holy, we strive to become like Christ. We, we strive to become true of what he says about us because the Christian life is about changing to reflect more and more of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to talk about the greatest enemy of change. The greatest enemy of change. Procrastination. Any of us deal with that? None of us, just three of us are honest, okay. You know, I literally had a nightmare about procrastination this week. And when I tell you these stories, I actually don't make any of them up. This actually happened. This week, of course, I was sleeping when I had the dream, and it was Easter Sunday. For whatever reason, that week I had to preach twice. I guess it was Good Friday, and I did not have a chance to do my Easter sermon, which is, of course, like the Super Bowl for churches, isn't it? And so that morning, I decided to come in really early to, to go ahead and just do my sermon real quick, maybe rework an old one, but things just kept happening, and I couldn't get to it. All of a sudden, the worship service was starting. So I said, that's okay. I'll just go on the worship service, and while they're singing, I'll just type up my sermon real quick. That's what I decided I was going to do. Soon as I got in the sanctuary, soon as I sat down, and by the way, the place was packed had more people than we've ever had in it before, of course. Soon as I sat down, it was then my turn to preach. And I got up, I said, well, I'll just do John 3.16 or, or something familiar like that. And as I got up to walk down the aisle, I realized I didn't have the mic or the right shoes or clothes on. So I'm walking down the aisle, putting on the mic, changing my shoes, coming up to preach on Easter Sunday. I don't know what happened after that. It fast-forwarded to the next day, thank the Lord. And I was sitting in the office. This is a true, true, true story, but true dream. Walked in the office and said, Scott, so how did Sunday go? He looked at me and said, that was terrible. He said, we lost an opportunity to reach so many people for Christ yesterday. Every pastor's worst nightmare. You see, for some things, procrastination can actually be a literal nightmare when you have weekly deadlines that you have to hit. But for other things, well, they're not so public and perhaps we can put them off. 
Right? Like how many times have you said, or I've said, Monday, I'm going to start the diet. I don't know what's wrong with Tuesdays, but for whatever reason, Monday is going to be the day. And all of us procrastinate sometimes. It's part of life, but it is the enemy to change. Procrastination means, of course, delay or postpone action. Put off doing something. And have you ever noticed it seems like we procrastinate on doing the things that we know we should do, but we don't want to do them? Have you ever heard of someone procrastinating to get off of a diet? No, off of a diet? I've just been eating healthy for too long now. But next week, I'll get off the diet. Or you know what? I've been saving way too much money. I I don't want to stop saving this week. Next week, I'll stop saving. Next week, I'll start blowing money. No, we procrastinate on the good things, the things we know we should do, but we just don't want to do them. Now, perhaps there isn't harm in many of them. I mean, perhaps I can wait to the next day to cut my grass right because here, every three days, you need to cut your grass anyways in the summertime. So maybe if I put that off, it's not such a big deal. Or maybe I really can start that project tomorrow. Or maybe Monday's really not bad time to start the diet. But what about those good things we should do? Or what about those God things we should do? Does it matter if we put off the things that God has put in our heart for us to do? Is there harm? Does it matter? Have we even considered that procrastination could actually be a problem in our lives? Because remember, Christian, our Christian life, Christianity is all about change, which means you and I are constantly faced with the temptation to procrastinate to put it off, do it later. And what I want us to learn today is this, pretty simple. Procrastination is the enemy of change and the tactic the enemy uses quite frequently. And perhaps it seems harmless, perhaps it seems like it's not a big deal, but I want you to see that today that procrastination can be devastating to your life because I simply do not want you And I know the Lord does not want you to miss out on your best life in Christ. And a lot of times procrastination can lead to a life of regret and a life of, well, let me me show you. Show you this morning. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel. Here's the backstory: The nation of Israel, they wanted a king. They wanted to be like everybody else. They were a theocracy, which means they were ruled through a, uh, they were ruled, led by God through a prophet. This is very important. It's not semantics. The prophet wasn't the leader. The prophet would speak on behalf of God. So the prophet wasn't using their wisdom to make decisions. The prophet would seek God in all things, and God would lead through the prophet or the priest. And the nation said, no, no, we don't want that anymore. We want a king like everybody else. So God reluctantly gives it to them. And this is what I find interesting. In their democracy, they thought they knew what's best. So together they said, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. And so God gave them what their heart desired. He gave them someone who looked the part, a king like everybody else. Look what it says about this king. 1 Samuel 9. So Kish had a son named Saul. Y'all heard of Saul? Raise your hand if you heard of Saul. Okay, glad the rest of you are here. As handsome and a young man as he could be found anywhere in Israel. 
Now look at this. And he was a head taller than anyone else. So here it is, the physical attributes of this king, this anointed one, the one who's going to be chosen to lead Israel. But look, his height is so important. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 10. It says this about him again. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. This is important when it's describing the first king of Israel. This man's name is Saul. He is the most handsome man in the land. He's the biggest. He's the tallest. He's the one that represents the mighty force that a king should be. Fun fact, just in case you ever played Bible trivia. Saul is the only Israelite in the entire Bible that is described as being tall. In fact, usually, except for Saul, when they talk about tall people, it's always the enemy of Israelites, the enemy of God. Pretty sure there's a sermon about tall people there, right? That short people actually are God's chosen. I just thought I'd throw that out there (laughs) for you. But he represents the physical military leader. Further along in his career, as you probably know, the Israelites were engaged with this with this other army, the Philistines. And Israel was to be led by their king, of course, to the battle. Both armies, both the Philistine and Israelites, came to the valley. Rather than taking the fight to the cities where women and children are, they would go out into an open space where the armies could engage in war. And look at what it tells us. 1 Samuel says this, 17. Sorry, that's a lot of verses to try to flip through, but this is really there. This is a champion name. You know this person, what's his name? Goliath, right, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He was over nine feet tall. It's pretty tall, yes. Okay. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale of armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs were bronze greaves and his bronze javelin was slung on his back. Notice they are pointing out his size. Here is now the biggest and the baddest for the Philistines. We've already been told who was the biggest for the Israelites. They've already made that case in Samuel. It was Saul. And look what Samuel said, verse 8. Excuse me, look what Goliath does in verse 8. It says, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and he kills and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Now think about this. Both armies are standing there ready for war. Goliath comes in the middle, says, look, how about this? You pick your biggest and baddest, they come fight me. And instead of everybody else needing to risk their lives, instead of everybody else needing to risk dying, how about we just have a one-on-one battle to settle the whole thing? Now, if you were in the military, would you appreciate that? But yeah, you mean someone can step up, someone else can fight. We can just have a one-on-one type thing, and then none of us have to risk it. You see, the king, the king is supposed to lead into battle. The king, we've already been told of Israel, is the biggest. This is Saul's fight. 
1 Samuel 17, 11 says this. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. You see, this is Saul's battle. Saul could save his men. This was his fight, but he was afraid. And just because he's afraid, that doesn't mean anything, right? We all get fearful. We all get afraid. That, that shouldn't stop us from doing what the Lord's asked us to do. But he kept putting it off. He kept waiting. In fact, Saul starts promising somebody else if they step up. He says, listen, if you step up and fight, you'll be rich. If you step up and fight, I'll give you one of my daughters to marry, which means you will instantly become royalty. That is, if you live. And the biggest... I'll exempt you from all taxes. I mean, he makes a deal, doesn't he? Listen, someone step up. I'll make you rich. I'll give you a wife, and you'll never have to pay taxes again. And for 40 days, Goliath stood in front of them, taunting them. For 40 days, Israel's biggest and baddest, their leader, put off doing what he was supposed to do. You see, here's the thing. God already decided who was going to win this battle. When you believe in God, when you trust in God, when you're following him in your life, you know that he is the sovereign. We talked about in that week one. We know that he already has everything under control. So God already decided who would win in this battle. But Saul, well, he kept putting it off. And it wasn't until the young son of Jesse, came up that something was done. Do you remember David? David wasn't in the military. David wasn't even supposed to be there. He was the youngest out of all of Jesse's sons. He was just this little shepherd. In fact, David is the gopher. He's taking his brother's food when he hears this Philistine running his mouth about him, excuse me, about Israel and their God. And David he said, well, somebody has to do something. Is it because he was the only one listening? Is it because he's the only one willing to step out on faith? We don't know exactly why David stood up, but he heard what said somebody needs to do this. And that day, David defeated Goliath. A small boy who didn't look like much. A small boy who didn't have any military training. He didn't put off doing what needed to be done. And that day forward, David, well, he was the leader of Israel. Not officially, but all the people looked to David. All the people praised David. All the people talked about David. And for the rest of Saul's life, you can read it, it's in your Bible. The rest of Saul's life, he lived with jealousy over David. He constantly wanted to kill him. He constantly looked at reasons to go after him. Saul's life was filled with regret for not stepping up and doing what was his duty and allowing David, a small little shepherd boy, to take all the glory. Simply because, well, Saul put off doing what he was supposed to do. See, procrastination, and you know this, I hope, procrastination has consequences. Even in the small things, I mean, think about it. Procrastinators, well, they tend to blame other people, don't they? They always think, well, it's someone else's fault. Someone else caused this. It's really not because of me. I mean, if they would have, if they should have, then I would have. 
Procrastination also fills your life with negativity. You know this is probably as well as I do. If you have something weighing over your mind all the time, does that make you feel at peace? Does that make you have joy? No, if you got that thing that you haven't done and the next day you don't do it, you're always filled with that incomplete, always filled with pressure and stress because you just didn't do what you should have done. Procrastinators can easily miss out on God's best for their life. You know, putting something off that God's asked you to do or doing something that you know you should do, it's not obedience. Just because you decide you should do it is not the same as actually doing it. For instance, I have a friend who knows everything. I mean, honestly, this person is super smart, knows so much, but they have a problem with what they know and then what they actually do. You ever met somebody like that? And when I would talk to this person, they had a situation going on in life. They said, I know, I know, I know. And I had to stop them and say, listen, have you noticed there's a disconnect between what you know and what you're doing? Have you noticed they're not coming together and that's why you're in a mess? See, James tells us when we don't do what we're supposed to do, when we know we're supposed to do, I'll let him tell us. James 4, 17, he says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, It's okay. Is that what it says? Verses right here. You didn't have to have that memorized. It's a sin for them. If you know what you should do, if you know the good you should do, if you know the thing you're supposed to be doing and you don't do it, it is considered sin. See, Jesus tells us the devil, the enemy, he is called the father of lies. And one of the greatest lies he tells all of us is just to do it later. It's just as convincing. It has the same effect as convincing us something isn't even true. Because if I don't believe it, then I won't do it. Or if I put it off, I'm still not doing it. It has the same effect. If he can get us to just wait, if he can get us to delay, do it later, he knows there's a great chance we won't do it at all. Because did you know procrastination can become a habit? Just ask Mondays. It can easily become a habit. Procrastination is the enemy of change and the tactic the enemy uses quite frequently. You see, when I was first called into ministry, I'd never yet, um, uh, never met a younger full-time pastor at all. The only younger pastor I'd ever seen, he just worked two days a week and that was it. And when I felt the Lord call me to ministry, the first thing that came to my mind was, you know what, that's an old person's job. I'll do it later. First, let me live my regular life, which meant let me do all the stuff I know I shouldn't be doing, right? First, let me live this regular life, and then when I get older, then I'll do what God's asked me to do. You ever notice you never have to talk yourself into doing the right thing, but you you can easily talk yourself out of doing the right thing? So I ask you this. What's your Goliath? What's that good you know you're supposed to do? What changes do you need to make but you keep putting off? Let's start easy. How about your health? You need to start a diet? Right now, I mean today at lunch, not Monday. I was starting a diet last Monday, and then someone brought cake pops into the office, so that just got screwed up. I was like, you know what? Next Monday, thanks, Miss Carol, next Monday... I will do that. 
I don't know why. Does anybody, has, does anybody done any research why Wednesdays don't work for a diet? Does anybody know? Probably are more successful if you start on a Wednesday. I'll try that next Wednesday. We'll see. Is your fear of what's next your Goliath? The next step? Is there something you need to end? Is there something that you need to have faith that you lack that God will take care of so you keep holding on to it? Is there something God said release? You know, we always think that the first 90 days when you start something is important, but I, I think your last 90 days is probably more important. People tend to remember what you do at the end far more than they do what you do at the beginning. For instance, I had a colleague who started his doctoral work at the same time I did, and we took classes together. We were both working through it all, and when it came to that final project, that dissertation, that year-long period of, of writing, he just kept putting it off. I'll do it next time. I'll do it next time. He had to continue to pay for continual enrollment. He would have to fly back out to school to meet with the professors. I mean, he spent several thousands dollars saying, I'll do it later. Rather than just owning the fact that this wasn't for him. Because if he ended it, then whose fault was it? His. But if he kept putting it off and they kicked him out, whose fault was it? Theirs. We delay because we want someone else to own it. We want someone else's fault. We want to blame somebody. Finally, after three years, he just owned the fact that, you know what? This isn't for me, and there's nothing wrong with that. He just needed to own that it wasn't his thing. If you struggle with ending things well, you should read this book called Necessary Endings by Dr. Henry Cloud. It's a great book. I suggest it to everyone. And just for the record, those of you who are dating, being in a bad relationship is not, being, is not better than being, hold on, excuse me, let's say this again. Being in a bad relationship is not better than no relationship. Some of you are dating the wrong people and you just need to get out of that and you're lonely and things like that. Just end it and move on because you never know what God has in store for you next. So think, speaking of relationships, have you been putting off something that you need a change in your relationship? Maybe your marriage, maybe an issue, maybe something that you need to deal with together, but you keep putting it off. I counseled a couple years ago who was dealing with serious major uh, marriage problems, and they came and said they don't know if they're going to make it. And so we talked through it, and we discovered that their schedules were the issue there. He worked a very time-consuming job that had him working all sorts of crazy hours, and they had two kids now, and of course he needed time after the schedule to go hunting and doing all his other hobbies because you can't, you know, you can't not do those, right? And so he had all these things, and they came to me, and we discovered that their, their, their schedules were the issue, and I was like, I am good at this. We have figured it out. So I summed it up. I was like, so we have discovered the changes that need to be made. They're like, uh-huh. Like, so, so what's y'all's next step? They're like, I was like, hold on. You, you must not be on the page. We have discovered that the scheduling is the issue. They're like, yeah. I was like, that's, man, this is awesome. So what, what's the plan? They were like, we, it's like, hold on. Let me help you a little bit more. I thought this could be a self-discovery thing. And I just kept working out for them. I said, so they finally just agreed, yes, we know that this is the issue. We know this is the problem. But they decided to make absolutely no changes. They split up just a few weeks later. Does that surprise anybody? It seems it's far easier to make changes after somebody leaves. I've seen that repeatedly. 
But I would suggest make those changes before they leave. Talk through how you can work through those things together. How about personal growth? Is that your Goliath? Is there a new skill that you need to gain? Is there something you need to do differently? Is there a change in your leadership or personal growth that's come to light and you're just fearful to make it? I know I've been putting things off. I've recently been confronted with how I haven't been documenting things like I need to. Does that make sense? I don't know how to explain it other than the fact that I don't like details and writing things down. Anybody else like that? Just two of us. Okay, well, good for the rest of you. For me, I don't particularly care for it. It's a waste of time to document things. But I have learned I would probably say far more time. Why are you all shaking your head? Well, let's talk about your issues. We all have them, right? At least, at least I'm honest. At least I'm honest. And what I've discovered is I probably could have saved a lot more time if I would have been properly documenting things. And so I am committed to trying to change. Can you commit to trying? Yeah, you should. You should commit to change. So I'm committing to change, and I'm dreadfully dreadfully committing to that. You don't understand how much I do not want to do that. So if I can do that, you got to walk away today with something that you're committing to do as well. And maybe it's that next step of faith. Do you need to commit your life to Jesus Christ or do you need to commit your life to the local church, you know, commit to a local church, maybe take that next step in baptism? You need to get involved in a small group or maybe you need to take that next step of faith in doing what God has placed in your heart to do? Have you learned that truth? Have you learned that God places things in your heart for you to do? I learned this years ago when I was on a scaffold with a brick mason. I was about 20 years old. I was an electrician at the time. We were remodeling this massive high school in Northern Virginia. I was up there with him chasing around doing the electrical pipes, and he was the only other Christian I knew on the whole job site, and we were talking about the Lord, and it was just the one guy I could celebrate with on Mondays what God was doing in our lives. It was pretty great. And I remember one day I was sitting there saying, I looked at him, I said, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great to like teach and preach for a living? And he looked at me as serious as he could be and said, no, that would be horrible. And I learned that day that God has a way of putting things in our heart for us to do, not for others to do. You see, Saul wanted somebody else to do what God had called him to do. And this happens quite frequently in the church, doesn't it? God puts something in our heart. Who do we go to? I know. Hey, pastor, God wants you to do this. Well, I'm, I'm quite, quite positive. I talked to him this morning. That's not what he put on my heart to do. But do you think perhaps he put that on your heart for you to do? No. But he has. When we have that burning, we have that passion, we have that desire, when we think something needs to be done, when we see an injustice or an opportunity or that thing, when God puts that passion in our lives, it's not for somebody else, it's for us. So maybe you need to step up on that. How about forgiving someone? Is that your Goliath? Is there somebody you need to forgive? Is there somebody who's hurt you that you need to just work through forgiving them? There's a reason why the Bible talks about it so much. In fact, there's a reason why Jesus is quite uh, well, blunt with it. Not forgiving hurts your relationship with God. That's why he's so forthright that we need to forgive. And when we forgive, we're forgiven as well. 
How about your finances? Is that your Goliath? Have you been putting off doing what God's asked you to do? Maybe balancing that checkbook? Maybe giving how he's asked you to give? I know it's easy to say, well, I'll, I'll start doing it when our finances get better. Amazingly, I don't know if you know this, but did you know that the more money you make, there's the more things you can buy? Did y'all know that? I'm just learning that. The more money you make, the more opportunity there is to spend. That just because you have more money doesn't necessarily mean you're more generous. Faithful with the smaller things will be faithful with the larger things. Have you been putting off being at peace with God? You see, God never tells us to clean up before we come to him. He tells us that through his, a relationship with him and through a relationship with his people, that then we will become who he has created us to be. Have you been putting off actually committing your life to him? See, your number one priority in life should be making peace with God, accepting his forgiveness and grace and living for him. I don't know what your Goliath may be. We just went through several examples, but I'm sure the Holy Spirit, if you've invited him to come today, I'm pretty sure he's put on your heart what your Goliath is, and I just want to encourage you to stop putting it off and step out on faith. See, because there's another story in the Bible, but this one isn't about a manly man. This is about a humble, young girl. If you've never read the story, you should read the whole thing on your own. It's the book called Esther. You see, to make a very long story short, Esther found herself being married to the king, the foreign king. He got rid of his other wife because she wouldn't listen to him. He said, woman, you need to do this. She didn't do it, and she was gone. I mean, something very similar to that. She was gone. So he brought in this Israelite, this young Jewish woman to be his new wife. Well, there was a scheme in his, one of the king's men drew up a scheme to annihilate all the Jewish people. He said, I'm getting rid of them all. We're killing them all. And Mordecai, who was Esther's uncle, said, listen, you need to step up and do something, Esther. You need to talk to the king. But Esther said, listen, if I go to the king and he doesn't want to hear from me, he can kill me. Like, that's the law. She's afraid. She goes, if I go to him and I speak out of turn, he could just wipe me out. First reaction, like the rest of it, somebody else can do it. Maybe I'll do it later. But look at what he tells her. He says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Perhaps Mordecai learned this from Saul and Goliath. See, Mordecai knew that God's will is going to be done. Mordecai knew, he said, listen, God's not going to let the Jews be wiped out. God will send somebody to save this. God will send somebody to deliver them. He said, Esther, either you can step up or not, but God's will is going to be done. But if you don't, there will be consequences. Remember Saul, he didn't want to risk it. He didn't want to lose. But who put Saul as king? Who called Saul to lead? God did. God put him in that position, and God's put you in your position. God's given you the talents and the abilities and the leadership or whatever else you got going on to be where you need to be to get done what he has asked you to do. And well, Esther, well, she stepped up, didn't she? She went to the king and risked it all. I mean, literally risked everything, and we know her as the hero because of her courage. 
not because of her height, not because of her strength, because of her courage. Her story is being told over and over again as an example of someone who lived on faith. Well, Saul, you ever heard of Saul and Goliath? Nope. But you hear of David and Goliath. His story is being told over and over again. See, for whatever reason, God chooses to use us. And we understand, and when you embrace that God appoints us, he calls us, and he is the one we are truly working for, it makes stepping up and stepping out so much easier because we're all going to face obstacles in this life. But it's being faithful in the small things, the little things, the seemingly unimportant things. It's being faithful in those small things that will lead us to be faithful in the larger habits. We all have them. Doesn't mean it'll be easy, but it means you're being faithful to the one who called you. And perhaps that very thing that you're putting off, that thing you're saying, I'll do it tomorrow. Perhaps God has brought you for this time in this place to do it. Because your entire life will be told as a story one day. You are setting the course for your life and your families, generations to come with the choices that you make. Understand God's will will be done regardless. But he just may use someone else. So I ask as we close, what story do you want to be told about you? What do you want people to say about your family, about your leadership, about your faith, about your courage? Do you want it to be, well, they were just, or man, you know what my grandma or grandpa did? We all have that choice, don't we? Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we do come to you in the name of Jesus and thank you for all that you give us. Lord, we know that you've called each and every one of us to change. You've called us to grow and reflect more of Christ. And Lord, there are areas in our life that are just downright scary to turn over to you. There are areas that we cling to, that we hold on to. There are areas that we just want to lead. Father, please expose them. Allow us to turn those over to you and invite change into our lives. We know that when we are following and stepping out on faith for you, we know that we will succeed. Because your will will be done, Father. So, Father, let us write stories in our life of courage, of faith, of risking it all for you. Father, we thank you and invite your Holy Spirit to come in our lives to change what we see and change what we seek. Father, if there's anyone here who hasn't given you their life, they haven't made that decision to make you their Lord and Savior, Lord, we invite them to do that today. Nudge them, let them know that today is the day they can commit their life to you. All they have to do is repent. That's turn from their sins. Accept your offer of salvation. Be born again. We thank you for making that opportunity possible. We just ask your spirit to pull us, to nudge us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.